Good morning and thank you for tuning in again. I hope this video finds that you and your families are doing well. My name is David Creech and I'm with the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see our times of services on the screen here and you can check out our website at www.godsredeemed.org. Uh, you can also see the times of our services there on the website as well as any important announcements. Okay, uh, today we're continuing our study in the New Testament book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. This is a lesson number 11, and we'll be covering chapter 10 today. Uh, by way of review, recall from last week that we saw Peter in Lydda, a, a city on the southeastern edge of a fertile coastal plain known as the Plain of Sharon. A man by the name of Aeneas was healed. The significance of that miracle was magnified by the fact that this man was well known. Uh, his malady was well known, having been paralyzed and bedridden for, for eight years. And, and then he was healed immediately. T today, there are those that claim to be able to perform miracles of healing by the power of the Holy Spirit. But such healings don't hold up under a close scrutiny. Audiences are filled with actors uh, that are unknown to others in the audience. They're often paid for their services. Such healings tend to be fueled by emotional enthusiasm and thus uh, temporary. Uh, what I'm getting at is that such miracles today bear little resemblance to the miracles that we see here in the New Testament. And uh, as significant as the healing of Aeneas was, uh, Peter then raised Tabitha from the dead. And recall that her Greek name was Dorcas. Uh, speaking of those that claim to, to perform miracles today, th this reminds me of a gospel preacher that once was in a debate with a, someone who claimed to be a faith healer. And after some hours of debate with neither side budging on their position, the gospel preacher uh, finally said, I propose that we put this to a test. Next door is a cemetery. Let's meet out there, and after you raise the first one from the dead, I'll raise all the rest. Anyway, back to our lesson. Recall that uh, Tabitha, or Dorcas, was raised from the dead. It says that, that many believed on the Lord after that. And, and at the end of last week's lesson, we saw Peter staying in Joppa, at the home of Simon, who was a tanner by trade. Now, chapter 10 opens up by introducing us to uh, a man of Caesarea. Now, let me blow this map up a little bit so you can see this. Uh, there were two cities with the same name. With, they were named Caesarea. The, the one we're talking about here on... on um, the coast of the Mediterranean was sometimes called Caesarea Maritima. Uh, that's just a word that means by the sea. And that's in order to distinguish it from the other Caesarea, which was Caesarea Philippi, uh, further inland. Uh, also notice the relationship here between Caesarea that we're talking about in Acts 10 and Joppa. Okay, uh, that's a distance there of about 30 miles uh, and keep that keep in mind that that's about that's 30 miles 
as the crow flies, as they say, straight line distance. <clears throat> okay, um, so again, the, the Caesarea of Acts 10 was a city about 30 miles north of where Peter was staying in Joppa. It was built by Herod the Great around 13 BC and was named in honor of uh, Augustus Caesar. Um, most of the Roman procurators of Judea made it the seat of their government. Interestingly enough, this Caesarea not only uh, was the home of Cornelius, but, but also became the place of residence for Philip the Evangelist. Over in Acts chapter uh, 21, verses uh, 8 and 9, talks about Paul entering the house of Philip, uh, Philip the Evangelist, and, and how uh, Philip had four daughters who prophesied. Paul would later be held under arrest in Caesarea for, for two years, beginning in Acts cha chapter 23, prior to his appearance before Herod Agrippa. Now, we're told a, a number of things about Cornelius here in Acts chapter um, 10 and verse 1 and following verses. Of course, his name was Cornelius. He, he lived in this city, Caesarea, that's Caesarea Maritima. It makes sense that this would be where he was stationed since it was the seat of government for the region. He was a soldier in the Roman army, not just any soldier, but a commander over 100 men and what was called a centurion. And not just any centurion, but a centurion of the Italian regiment. Some translations will say the Italian band or the Italian cohort. Uh, a couple of things that are worthy of note here. Historians tell us that the Italian regiments were composed of volunteers, therefore considered to have the most loyal of the Roman soldiers. Other regiments consisted of conscripted or drafted soldiers. Um, those who were in the Roman army, not because they necessarily wanted to be there, but because they didn't have a choice in the matter. And, and historians tell us that there were 32 such Italian regiments stationed throughout the Roman Empire. Now, the fact that Cornelius was the commander over a hundred men meant that his leadership skills were highly cherished by the Roman military. I mean, they didn't put just anybody in charge of that many men. And not only that, but verse uh, 22 says that he was a just man uh, and had a good reputation, uh, not just among the Jews, but it says among all the nation of the Jews. And that's very high praise for a Gentile. Let's get back down to uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 10, right around verse 2. Uh, we see that he gave alms to the people. Uh, we talked about that word alms in a, in a previous lesson. Alms refer to any food, money, clothing given to the poor out of pity or compassion. In fact, uh, the Greek word for alms means compassion. And, and notice here in verse 2 that he did more than just give alms. He gave alms generously. And he was a devout man, a man who feared God, a man who prayed to God. And not just a man who, who prayed once in a while or occasionally, but it says here, always. You know, we ourselves, we're divinely instructed 
that we should pray without ceasing over in First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. But, but I wonder, could it be said of us that we do that? I mean, even as, even as Cornelius, could it be said that we pray to God always? It should be said. So Cornelius was what was referred to as a God-fearer. Uh, there are a couple places in the New Testament that make this distinction between the, the Jews that feared God and those that were not Jews that feared God. Over in Acts chapter 13 and verse 16, this is Paul in Antioch of Pisidia with Barnabas. Uh, they're addressing the men in the synagogue and, and saying, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Also, in down in verse 26 of the same chapter, Acts 13, uh, Paul says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. With reference to the Jews, the scriptures talk about two main categories of people, really, um, Jew and Gentile. Uh, you were either a Jew or you weren't. Uh, if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. Uh, one sort of exception to that was a Gentile who desired to convert to Judaism. And uh, that is to be circumcised and to be subject to all the Jewish laws. And such a person would be called a proselyte and would therefore be treated as if they were born a Jew. In other words, they were no longer referred to as Gentiles. And this is an important distinction to make here because there were severe restrictions under Jewish law for associations between Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, and just to be blunt about it, Gentiles were considered unclean. And by that, I don't mean that they needed a bath. <laughs> uh, they were ceremonially or religiously unclean. There were a, a number of ways that a Jew could themselves become ceremonially unclean, such as contact with a dead body. But, but any Jew who came into close contact with a Gentile would also be rendered unclean and, and would have to take some very specific actions in order to become clean again. So the Jews took this very seriously, and, and we're going to see in this lesson how that became a problem. But uh, back to the proselytes, again, uh, proselytes of the Jewish faith were treated differently. You know, we've talked about some proselytes already. Uh, there were proselytes present on the day of Pentecost. If we look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And we go down to verse 10, uh, after sort of listing a number of these nations, it says, um, both Jews and proselytes. Remember from Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, uh, the seven men who were selected to serve in that special capacity, certain widows were being neglected in the daily serving of food. Recall that Stephen was among them. Philip was one of them. Uh, they're named here in verse 5, and it specifically points out that Nicholas was a proselyte from Antioch. And we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch over in Acts chapter 8. 
It doesn't specifically state that he was a proselyte, but he was relig- uh, excuse me, he was rigidly adhering to the Jewish laws requiring a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So it's very likely that he was a proselyte. The reason I make a point of emphasizing all that is because some will say that that Cornelius was not the first Gentile convert to Christianity. They'll point out that Nicholas and others like him were, after all, Gentiles. Uh, They just happened to convert to Judaism. In other words, they became proselytes before converting to Christianity. But again, in the grand scheme of things where you had Jews that were considered clean and Gentiles that were considered unclean, uh, the Jews did not consider proselytes to be Gentiles. And and we're going to see, especially when we get in chapter 11, that the reaction of even the apostles to Peter's visit with this Gentile named Cornelius shows that there was a huge distinction. And uh, speaking of Cornelius, it's interesting to note that as a Gentile who feared God, who was... Uh, considered devout, who was generous to the poor, uh, and, and who was in the habit of, of continual prayer to God, uh, Cornelius's actions went up as a memorial before God, it says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 4. And, and then um, in verse 31, it says that his prayer was heard and that his alms were remembered before God. Now, when it says that his prayer was heard, what was Cornelius praying for something specific? Did he, like the Ethiopian eunuch, have questions that needed answers? Well, we're not told about that. We're told that he spent a lot of time in prayer, but we don't know any of the specifics about what he prayed for or prayed about. But what we do know is that he was told by the angel to send for Peter who would then tell him what he needed to do. Uh, Have you heard that before? Shake your head up and down. (laughs) Yes, many times. And please note with me again that that here is a just man with a good reputation. He feared God. He was very giving and compassionate toward others, and he prayed to God continuously. By many people's standards today, this man was already saved. If that was the case, why send for Peter? Why would this angel tell him to send for Peter? So that Peter could come and tell him what he needed to do. So Cornelius does as he was instructed to do. Uh, He sends three men to Joppa. It it appears uh, from Acts chapter 10 and verse 7 that two were trusted servants, household servants, and the third was a devout soldier under his command. Now, this was uh, sometime after the ninth hour of the day, as we see in verse 3. In Jewish reckoning, the first hour was 6 o'clock in the morning, so the ninth hour would have been 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Keep that in mind for a minute. Then it says in verse 9 that these three men were nearing the city, as Peter goes up on the housetop to pray. And it was about the sixth hour. So what would that have been? Well, again, if uh, six o'clock in the morning was the first hour, then the sixth hour would have been 12 o'clock or noon. 
And I want you to take note of the fact that these three men did not waste any time traveling that 30 miles from Caesarea to Joppa. And remember what we said earlier, that 30 miles was straight line distance. Um, so the, the distance traveled by road could have been considerably longer. So Peter goes up on the housetop to pray. As he's praying, he falls into a trance. And while he is in this trance, verse 11 says that he sees heaven open up and this great uh, bundle, you know, what is described as being something like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending down to the ground. At some point, Peter is able to see into this great sheet and, and see from verse 12 that it's filled with the kinds of animals that Jews consider to be unclean. Part of the dietary restrictions that Jews were under as part of the old law or the the law of Moses, as we sometimes call it. Uh, Peter hears the voice in verse 13, Arise, kill, and eat. Verse 14, Peter says, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice replies in verse 15, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Uh, the New American Standard Version uses the word unholy there. What, what God has cleansed, you must not call unholy. And I like the New Living Translation for this. It says, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. <laughs> and, and this happens three times. And as Peter is wondering what all this meant, there was a knock at the door. The, the Spirit tells him in verses 19 and 20 that three men are seeking him and to go with them, doubting nothing. And I think verse 23 at least alludes to the fact that Peter was beginning to understand what the vision was all about because he does something that no Jew would consider doing under ordinary circumstances. He invites them in and provides lodging for them. So they stay the night with him there at the home of Simon the Tanner. So from Acts chapter 10 verse 23 and following, we see what appears to be 10 men headed for Caesarea the following day. And that would be Peter, the three men whom Cornelius sent. And verse 23 just says, some brethren, that would be Christian Jews from Joppa, accompanied them. But actually over in Acts chapter 11 and verse 12, it tells us that there were six men that he'd taken with him as witnesses. So back over in Acts chapter 10, verse 24, when they arrive at, at the home of Cornelius, Cornelius is waiting for them. And, and not just himself, but he's invited friends and family to be there when Peter arrived. And, and being a military man myself, I can envision Cornelius having calculated uh, almost to the hour when these men would arrive back in Caesarea, and they were waiting. And can you see the faith of Cornelius? Just going on what an angel told him to do in a vision, and that is send for Peter and Joppa, he has assembled family and friends and is eagerly awaiting what this man of God has to say. Now, when Peter arrives, <clears throat> uh, Cornelius falls down at his feet. And verse 25 says he tries to worship him. And, you know, so many so-called religious men down through the years and even today, have, have been content, it seems, to take some of the glory 
that belongs only to God the Father or God the Son upon themselves, either through some honorific title or by allowing other men to fall prostrate before them or to kiss a ring or some other such nonsense. But but Peter doesn't stand for it here. And, and later we'll see Paul and Barnabas in a similar situation, being treated as if they were gods, and, and they didn't stand for it either. Uh, I did a brief internet search of religious titles, and I wanted to share some of these with you. Uh, the first one I'll start with is uh, one that's very common, reverend. Uh, I think we've all heard that one applied to someone, and, and we probably you know, didn't give it a second thought. But do you realize that the word reverend, it's only used in some of the older translations like the King James Version, the American Standard Version, and always it's always used to describe some attribute of God himself. Other translations like my New King James Version substitute the word awesome for reverend here. And I got an example over in, uh, in Psalm uh, chapter 111 and verse 9. It says, he has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Now, if you're reading from a King James Version or American Standard Version, it will say, holy and reverend is his name. The the Greek word for reverend or awesome here literally refers to the awe and fear and respect we should have for God Almighty. I don't think I've ever heard of a religious person refer to themselves as awesome, or at least they don't use that as part of their title. But but many have no problems putting reverend, a word that means the same thing, in front of their name. Uh, and then there are the what I call the offshoots of reverend, as if reverend by itself we're not quite sufficient. There, there is most reverend. I mean, is there some kind of hierarchy among men of reverendness? Is there reverend, and then above that is more reverend? And then at the pinnacle of reverendness is most reverend. And if you have a most reverend, does that mean there's a least reverend? No. Uh, I also saw this one, you know, very reverend. I mean, is that equal to, greater than, or less than most reverend? Uh, then there uh, was right reverend. Uh, I don't know if that's supposed to be compared to left reverend or uh, to wrong reverend, but um, how about these last two here? Your holiness, your excellency. I'm sure there are others that are equally disturbing. Uh, you know, we don't see any of the New Testament disciples taking any of these titles for themselves. Uh, in fact, Jesus himself taught just the opposite. Now, why then do men do it today? But back to our, our sequence of events here in Acts chapter 10, right around verse 24. After Peter tells Cornelius to stand up, he finds that there are many who had come together in his house. He addresses those that are assembled there and begins in verse 28 by pointing out how it's unlawful for a Jew to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. And we already talked about some of the reasons for that. But then it goes on to say, but God. 
You know, I'm going to stop right there for a moment. I want to encourage you, if you have time in your personal studies, to, to look at all the times in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit reveals the bleakness of our situation and then says, but God. Or, or something similar to that, but by the grace of God or but the gift of God. In this case, even though Peter has already spoken to Saul in Jerusalem, and Saul no doubt told him about his mission to the Gentiles, you can't help but wonder what Peter thought about that. Did, did he have doubts? Uh, I suspect that he did. I suspect that if you had asked Peter a couple of days earlier if, if Gentiles could be saved, he would have said no. Uh, the exception would have been through that process that we talked about earlier of first becoming a proselyte to the Jewish faith. But God, <laughs> but God intervened and showed Peter more perfectly that his plan of redemption was for all people. And he says in verse 28, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And, and in verses 35, excuse me, 34 and 35, Peter says, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. <clears throat> uh, remember in our uh, conversation, an earlier lesson about works of merit versus works of righteousness. You know, too many people today are, are awfully quick with the words, you know, works can't save us. You know, that's just, that's just a, a reply they come back with almost immediately for some things. But, but is that true? Well, it, it depends on what kind of work it is. It depends on the motivation behind the work. This passage says, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Uh, if we don't fear God or if we don't engage in righteous works, can we be accepted by him? And if we're not accepted by him, can we be saved? And then look at verse 43 where it says, uh, and actually I want to show 43 and 35 on the screen at the same time if I can. It just barely fits, looks like. Okay. Uh, verse 43, it says, whoever believes in him will receive remission. That's the New King James Version, uh, remission. So some other translations uh, will say, will receive forgiveness of sins. And that's just, the, the word remission and forgiveness mean the same thing. Um, whoever believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. You know, it's, it's sad and uh, troubling, really that so many will focus on passages like this one while completely ignoring the surrounding context. People will say, see here, right here in verse 43, all you have to do is believe and you'll receive forgiveness of sins. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And strangely enough, they don't want to hear any more discussion on the matter. Well, God said a lot of things, none of which should ever be taken out of context and called the truth. Uh, how can I possibly reconcile verse 43 with verse 35? How is it that whoever believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins in verse 43, 
but then I have to fear him and do works of righteousness, it says in verse 35, in order to be accepted by him. How can both those be true? Well, they can only both be true if the believing in him, in verse 43, includes fearing God and doing works of righteousness, mentioned in verse 35. It really all boils down to what it means to believe. Uh, nowhere <clears throat> uh, do we see belief in God as some sort of superficial faith, you know, being nothing more than a mere acknowledgement that, yes, God exists. But the kind of faith that saves is always rooted in obedience, a, a willingness to do whatever God has told us to do. In verses 44 and following, as we wrap up the lesson here, we, we see something unexpected happen, something very unexpected to the Jews that were witnessing this, uh, those six men that Peter brought with him, Peter himself. Uh, verse 45 says that they were astonished. What were they astonished about? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now, why did this happen? Why did the Holy Spirit see fit to have the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out on these Gentiles in this manner? Um, the same way the Holy Spirit was poured out, poured out, you know, essentially on the 12 apostles back in Acts chapter 2. And the reason? To seal the significance of this event and that salvation had been poured out on the Gentiles as well. Uh, what did Peter ultimately tell them to do? Uh, remember, the angel told Cornelius, send for Peter, and he will tell you what you need to do. What did he tell them? He commanded them, uh, told them in verse 48, to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Well, we're out of time for today. Uh, thank you for watching or listening, whichever the case may be. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to finish up chapters 11 and 12 for this quarter. Bruce Higdon will be picking up where I left off. In the next lesson, we're going to see that Peter has some explaining to do when he gets back to Jerusalem. After all, he, he met with uncircumcised men. He went in to them. And if that wasn't bad enough, he ate with them. Well, recall from a previous lesson how he said that part of the Holy Spirit's role was to reveal all truth. But rather than reveal all truth all at once, he revealed that truth incrementally over time. Well, this was a big increment and, and took some getting used to. So until next week.